is summer. You know what that means. Sprinklers are buzzing, popsicles are melting, and the Consumed Podcast is on your speakers for that road trip you've dreamed of taking. This is the show that features conversations with eaters, thinkers, drinkers, and makers on California's Central Coast. And I am your host, Jamie Lewis. Thanks for letting me tag along. Before we start, I want to tell you a little bit about some of the sponsors of the Consumed Podcast. We all know eating fruits and veggies is an important part of staying healthy. Fresh, local produce has the most flavor and nutrition, but how do you know what's in season locally? Become part of the Tally community as a member of the Tally Farms Box Program. Tally grows their produce and partners with other California farmers to include the freshest and best-tasting local produce you can find anywhere. Farming on the Central Coast since 1948, the Tally family created the Tally Farms Box to make healthy eating easy and affordable. Here's how it works. Select which size box you want, then choose pickup or home delivery and how often you want to get your box. It's flexible for customization and vacation holds, and included in all boxes are tested recipes and storage recommendations. Come be a part of Tally's healthy lifestyle. Visit tallyfarmsbox.com and use promo code CONSUMED for $10 off your first box. That's promo code CONSUMED for $10 off. Eat fresh, eat local, and eat lots of California fruits and veggies for better health. I recently spoke with Santa Barbara County wine veteran Wes Hagen in his new capacity as brand ambassador for Rancho Steanaveros Wines. He said the winery has started defining itself as deliberate, historic, and sublime, which if you've ever tasted Rancho Steanaveros wines, you will understand. Owner James Onaveros planted his vineyard with his own two hands after school and on weekends while studying at Cal Poly. All he had was his belief in the Santa Maria Valley, an eight-acre patch of mineral-stripped land, and his name. Turns out that was more than enough to produce some of the most elegant Pinot Noir in California. Today, winemaker Justin Willett makes RDO's Pinot Noir, as well as elegant Santa Maria Valley Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon from the San Inez Valley. Call Wes Hagen for a private tasting with one of Wine and Spirits magazine's top 100 wineries in the world for 2021. Reach him at Wes at RanchoSteanaveros.com or 805-450-2324. Okay, on to the episode. Annie Yu learned to cook from her grandmother, who grew up near Canton, China. Her style of cooking included a lot of seafood, rice, and milder spices than the northern Sichuan cuisine. As the first American-born of seven siblings, Annie spent a lot of time in Chinatown in Boston, traveling to the markets with her grandmother. Today, Annie teaches Asian cooking in San Luis Obispo after many years in the world of corporate training. She shared with me her secrets for stir-fry, which are fascinating— her dad's one wish for his kids, and the reason she and her husband decided to move from the East Coast to San Luis Obispo. Enjoy my talk with Annie Yu. Annie Yu is at the table. Annie, um, how did I come across you? I feel like maybe it was on Instagram or something. You have an Instagram account. I do. That's about food. Food specifically (laughs) to you. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think... I may have seen you because 
you were cooking some kind of a feast or something and, and classes. On Edible Slow. Yes, It was right. the magazine. They had actually featured Chinese New Year. Yes. Uh, winter of 2022. Mm-hmm. And they had asked me if I could actually make a Chinese New Year meal. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, my gosh, that's like the toughest thing to do. Why? Because it's a lot of courses. Oh, yes. So I said, if I could recruit my friends to help me, I could do it. Yeah. And my friends all gladly helped me. And so we actually prepared together. Oh, nice. And we made the meal, and they were part of the photo shoot. Well, and I saw that photo shoot. Um, yes. Beautiful like luxurious food. What, what are some of the traditional Chinese New Year dishes? Is it, is it pretty prescribed? Like there are certain things that have to be there? There are certain things that are, are, are always there. And the foods are very symbolic. Mm-hmm. And the symbolism, a lot of it can relate to having the um, dish sound like a Chinese word that is um, good luck or prosperous. So for example, uh, we always have chicken mm-hmm. because the Chinese word for chicken is guy. Mm. And the way you say good luck, good fortune is house I guy. Mm. So because the word for luck and prosperity sounds like chicken, we always have chicken. But they're not related, like they're not from the same root word. They don't no. mean, okay. No, okay. it's just, it's like a homonym. Yes. Okay. So it sounds like it. Um, we always have noodles because noodles symbolize long life. Oh, that's darling. I love it. A yeah. long noodle for long exactly. life. Exactly. So whenever you cook the noodles, you have to make sure you don't cut the noodles. Oh, yeah. Because you want to leave it long. Yep. So we definitely had a noodle dish. And it could be any noodle dish. So, you know, you just choose what you like the best. Mm-hmm. Um, there's usually whole fish, which also symbolizes prosperity. Mm. But it's really difficult to make whole fish with a large group of eight people mm. um, because it, you, you kind of have to be with it the whole time, right? Isn't it? Well, you, you, it, it's hard to cook a whole fish because it's for eight people. Mm. And the biggest fish I could fit in a pot is usually four pounds. <laughs> so everybody gets like a bite. Yeah. So we didn't do fish. It was also a little bit complex because just sourcing a whole fish sometimes yes. is not always available. Yeah. It really depends on, you know, the fishermen that's out there. Yeah. So we also um, had little Chinese almond cookies because it looks like gold ingots. Oh, beautiful. I and you always have some type of dumpling because it also looks like a gold ingot. So it, oh, I thought it was for a purse. That's what I pictured it, in my well, mind. It, it could be too yeah. because it holds money. So yeah. basically, you know, the foods are just all really symbolic. And then we, we also make things that we just like to eat. Yeah. Like I always like sweet and sour shrimp with lychee. So we mm. always have like a sweet and sour dish. Yeah. So, you know, we made that too. And then we had a soup. We made hot and sour soup. Love it. So I think we made about seven or eight dishes. Yeah. And um, it was just a lot of fun doing this with my friends because they really all got into it. And um, they were happy preparing that we all cooked together. Mm-hmm. And the best part is we ate together. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's always the best part. And you were, and you got to dress up and be festive because yes. everybody wants to look good in these photos. And it's, the photo shoots are so much fun. Yeah. And, and the only guidance I gave them was it should be shades of red oh, because yeah. red is the symbol for good luck. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so you, you shouldn't wear black or white because mm-hmm. that's typically what you wear for a funeral. Yeah. So there were certain things I said you shouldn't wear, but, you know, so we were all wearing like bright shades of like red and I had purple on, but that, that counts. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, it, it just worked out nice because it was a photo shoot. We kind of all looked like we matched. So it yes. worked out well in that respect too. I remember that cover photo as well, just lush, beautiful. Was it dumplings on the It was cover? the pot stickers. Yes. Yes, and I think Jen Olson probably oh, did those. Oh, she's photos. an amazing she's, photographer. Oh, she's incredible, and and she's so behind the scenes. We were just cooking mm-hmm. and laughing, and she's just snapping away. And mm-hmm. I had no idea what was going to happen, but when I saw it, I went, "Wow, yes. this is better than I had imagined." Oh, I love it. And what was really fun about the pot sticker one was, um, I actually had two friends prepare it, and one is a successful CFO hmm. in town. She's a pilot. And then she said, but making dumplings kind of intimidate me because I've never done it before. Mm -hmm. And I said, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. If you can fly a plane, you can do this. That's (laughs) what I said. I said, this is a lot easier than flying a plane. Yeah. So she actually took it on and she was fine. And she, she did that with my other friend and, um, and then it made the cover, and I said, look at that. Look at that. You made the cover, so she was tickled pink. She has a new thing on her resume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can do cover shoots with dumplings. Yeah, pilot awesome. slash dumpling maker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so how did Edible Slow come across you? I mean, you must have some kind of a public presence with with your cooking. Is it through classes mostly or catering? Um, I don't cater, but I do classes. Mm -hmm. And I think where they found me was either through Facebook or Instagram. Mm -hmm. And so I actually have a page on Instagram at slow Asian cooking. Mm. I was actually surprised nobody took that, but I guess there aren't a lot of slow Asian cookers in in slow. Right. Right. (laughs) So I had done some public classes at the central coast culinary in slow. I had done a few of those. And then, um, but I really started with private cooking parties, mm-hmm. and it was all through word of mouth. And so the first class I did privately was about five years ago. Mm-hmm. It was actually um, a friend of my sister who lives in the Bay Area, whose mother lives in Atascadero. Oh, random. Very random. Yeah. And she says, oh, my mother in Atascadero would really like to do a Chinese cooking class. So. Yeah. Passed on my name. She contacted me, and we had an amazing time. Mm. It's a wonderful host, and actually just did another class for her a couple of months ago. So she called me back to do another class. And then from there, it was just through reference, mm-hmm. word of mouth. And I, I, I have my Instagram account. People reach out through yes. that. Yeah. Um, but that's really all I do to advertise, and mm. I am not looking to do high-volume, churning it out every week. I, I just do it because I love teaching people about Mm. what real Chinese food is in the Central Coast. And that's kind of why I started doing that. We don't have a lot of that here. We don't have a lot of, at least teaching-wise. Yeah. I I know when I first moved here 10 years ago, I'm originally from Boston. Okay. I don't know if you can tell. Slight accent. Very slight. (laughs) I love Boston. What Uh, a great city. Love Boston. And um, I grew up there and actually right in Chinatown. Mm. And so... You know, my shopping trips with my grandmother was just go to Chinatown, pick up food. I would watch her cook. And and then as I grew up and became an adult, I lived outside of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. 
I would still go there to get my fix, yeah. <laughs> my real Chinese cooking fix. And in those days, most of the style cuisine was Cantonese mm-hmm. or Hong Kong cuisine. So that's Southern Chinese food. Not as much Northern Sichuan spicy dishes, mm-hmm. more the Southern Chinese food. So that's kind of what I grew up eating. Mm-hmm. That's where I watched my grandmother cooking. Cantonese. Cantonese. Yeah. And so that's really what I cook. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I came here... I looked for that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, don't see it. So I would go to San Francisco, the like Bay Area. Incredible access to yeah. everything. And I would go there. I would do my monthly shopping you know, with mm-hmm. the Asian market, Ranch 99. I would get all my groceries. Wait, what's, what's Ranch 99? Is that like an emporium? You know, like a, is it a chain? It is a chain. It's, it's a, a very popular Chinese market. It's okay. like a regular supermarket, except all Asian goods, wow. yeah. you know, fresh foods as well as canned foods and spices. Mm-hmm. So I would go there and, and actually just get everything I needed and then come back and cook a storm till I ran mm-hmm. out of ingredients and I would mm-hmm. go back again. <laughs> but then I, I discovered that we actually have two good Asian markets in the area. I mean, I know of one, at least, the Slow Oriental Market. Yes. yes. And then also Daebu on Pismo Beach. Oh. So I go to both. And I said, there's everything I need enough that I can make my Chinese meals. Oh, isn't that cool? Yeah. That's very cool that we have access to that. Exactly. So I was able to just continue just making my foods without having to go to the Bay Area every month, because it's kind of a drive. Kind Um, of, yeah. Four hours. Exactly. Then I just switch it to like every six months and kind of get like, just to go eat the foods as well. I know. But, you know, I, I just found that when I moved here, I actually started cooking a lot more Chinese foods because Mm. in Boston, I went out a lot Yeah, because I didn't have to, I had so much access, Mm. but here I started cooking more. And then I started thinking about recipes that my grandmother had taught me. And I was like, how did that taste? I said, I remember I had a little bit of this. And then I would look up tons of recipes like that. And they say, okay, it had a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Then I would just kind of put it together. And then I would taste it. And I'd be like, still need something. So then after a while, I started creating a recipe library. Mm. And I said, you hmm. know, gosh, I th- first of all, this is good if I ever want to teach something. Yeah. But it's also good that I can give it to my sisters who are also, you know, mm. they like Chinese food. Then also for me, like someday I may forget how to do these recipes, but now it's all documented and I can give it to my kids. Yes, that's a huge gift. Yeah, so I actually started just doing a library of recipes and then um, my friends actually asked me to start teaching them how to make some simple Chinese dishes. Mm -hmm. And so I got together with my friends, we did that. And then when I retired from my full-time job, I used to be a corporate trainer. Mm. Um, I was going to ask, so where does the education and teaching part come from? Yeah. So you are a born teacher. Well, I, I actually went to, I have my master's degree in elementary ed. Yeah. And then I got a job in corporation teaching English as a second language mm-hmm. and then morphed into corporate training. Mm. So I did a lot of leadership and management training. So I retired from that job about seven years ago, and then I was looking for something to do. I was getting a little bored mm-hmm. not having something to do on a regular basis, and so I really loved Chinese cooking. I had all these recipes that I had been creating, and then one of my friends said to me, why don't you teach other people besides yeah. us? Mm-hmm. And I said, gosh... That's a good idea. And that's how my first client became my sister's friend in a task. <laughs> and that's kind of how it started. So I started doing that. 
And I just found that I love doing it because I love mm-hmm. teaching. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I also love the idea of teaching people in the Central Coast what Cantonese cooking is because yes. we don't have it here. Yes. Right. And I just found people kept saying, I've never had anything like this. Mm-hmm. Or I never knew it was so easy to make a dish like this. Mm-hmm. And I just liked the fact that I was able to simplify recipes but still make it taste really, really good. Mm-hmm. So that that just kind of keeps me like passionate about teaching. Yes. yes. And so that's what I continue to do. And that's what I just really love doing. And yeah. it's kind of my post uh, retirement job that I chose mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just been really fun. That's a great post retirement job or a great job in general. Yeah. Have you dined at Mi Hang Lo in town? Honestly, I haven't. Oh gosh, you gotta go. Well, that's chop suey Americanized, you know, Chinese mm-hmm. food. But um, I was talking to the chef, Paul Kwong, and if I remember correctly, isn't Southern Chinese food, is it more rice-based or noodle-based? Yes. Rice yes. Rice is the more common starch. More rice-based, um, seafood-based, yep. a lot of garlic, scallion, whereas northern is more wheat-based, so yes. you're going to get a lot more noodles. bread, a lot more noodles. Yes. And so I'm more familiar with the Southern style okay. of cooking. So that's really what I do. And it sounds like that's what Paul Kwong does too. Well, he kind of does a, he does multiple different things. Okay. He's a, I mean, he's a, a very, very trained chef mm-hmm. um, uh, with lots of experience. So I think he can kind of do anything. Yeah. Um, but with your family, was your grandmother born overseas? She was born in a small um, village called Toysan, okay. which is actually south of Canton. Oh. So it's still southern China. So it's real then. It's like it's authentically... It's yes. not just a choice, this is what I like. It's She it's, comes from there. It comes from a, a town. And Toysanese food is very much like Cantonese food because of the pr- proximity mm-hmm. of the location. Mm-hmm. So it, it just kind of shared the same cuisine. There's some minor nuances to Toysanese cuisine, which is really my background, Toysan. Um, but it's close enough to Cantonese cuisine. What are the differences? Tiny as they it, may be. It's, it's very minor. It might be different spices mm-hmm. that we use. Um, it's more the spicing and maybe uh, Toysan was more rural. Yeah. So maybe a lot more of the, 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 the vegetables might have been a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But the flavor profile is very, very similar. Yeah. And then some people also call Cantonese cuisine Hong Kong cuisine because... Mm. Southern China is very close to Hong Kong. It's yes. just a ferry boat away. So then the, that kind of also morphed together. Mm. So we kind of almost see it as a combination of all. And when you go to a Cantonese restaurant, it could be a mix of any three of those mm-hmm. cuisine. Yeah. But it, it's so close. It sounds like you've been. Have you been overseas to I to have see? been to Hong Kong. Yeah. And I have been actually back to my um, parents' village. Wow. So we actually went back with my mom and my older sister and my one younger sister. My older sister was actually born in this village in okay. Toysan. Mm-hmm. And um, my parents actually kept the house that they lived in with the hopes that one of us would go back and live there. Oh, how cool. Yeah, which we probably won't because there's no running water. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, it, it's just not like San Luis Obispo. <laughs> so, <laughs> a few things are, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so most of us, none of us will probably choose yeah. to do that, but it's nice that they kept the home, and it was mm-hmm. wonderful that we got to see the roots and how they cooked. 
Mm. You know, like in an open pit, you know, with just one walk. And it, it was just really kind of nice and humbling to see kind yeah. of our roots. Yes. Um, How, why did your parents come to the U.S.? Uh, opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like my dad actually came, I think when he was 14 or 15, he was sponsored um, to come here. And he came to make a living. And then when he was old enough, I almost want to say like when he was 20, he went back to China and married my mother. Mm-hmm. And But it's really because um, because Toysan was such a poor farming community, mm-hmm. he had to come here to make money. Yeah. And then uh, eventually when he got married, he had to come back to the United States and work six more years to bring back my mother and my older sister. Wow. And then I was the firstborn in America. Wow. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, it's probably a very common immigrant story think, yes. where people come for better opportunities. Yeah. And um, my dad's major wish, seven kids, was that we all go to college and have a better opportunity than he did. Mm. And we did. And that was the one thing he just asked from all of us. So we all went to college mm. and... All seven. All seven. That's a beautiful thing. That's incredible. He must be so, so proud. Yeah. He was very, very proud of, of what we were able to do. And he said, that's all I want, because he just knew his humble beginnings. And he yeah. said, it's the only way to get out of, you know, being poor mm-hmm. is to, like, just go to college. And he's right. So we all did. I think that um, this, is not the sh- this is not about me, but I'm reminded as you talk about the desire for somebody to go to college and where your dad came from and what he had to sacrifice. I mean, being away from his daughter and his wife for six years to be able to afford to bring them over. That's a very common immigrant story as well, where there's a lot of separation. Right. Um, But think about how hard he had to work and his one wish was that you would all be educated. Mm -hmm. I wish that my kids could understand how much they take that for granted, how much we take public education and any kind of education Mm -hmm. for granted. I sometimes will tell my daughter in particular, who is not enjoying school right now, um, there are kids all over the world, all over the world who would, you know, they would give up a lot to have what you have. Especially free education, right? Free. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things um, when, when my husband and I, we had all two sons, we really, there was like a fine line, like we want them to have a better life than we did, obviously, but we don't want it to be a free ride. Yeah. So we, we were always very cognizant of not giving them too much so that they take it for granted, mm-hmm. um, but we wanted them to, to, to ha- be able to play sports and do things yeah. that we weren't able to do. So we, we were very cognizant of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're both doing really well. They both have great jobs in Boston. They're doing really well. And mm. they're on their own. They're not asking mom and dad for money to help. <laughs> How they, old are they? Um, one is going to turn 40 this year. Oh, my And the gosh. other one is 38. I'm you thinking, do not look old enough to have and a 40-year-old. Like, and I can't believe they're 40. I'm thinking like, okay, I don't know how they turned 40. He turned yeah. 40 so quickly. Um <laughs> But they live within their means. You yeah. know, if they can't afford it, they just wait. And yeah. and it's easy for us to say, okay, here you go. But we don't. Yeah. Because I want them to live within their means. So we're still cognizant of that, that we don't want them to feel like this is a free ride. You you earn what you do. Because everything my husband and I have at this time, we earned. Mm-hmm. Nobody gave us anything. 
my parents, again, were immigrants, so they didn't have a lot of money to give us when mm-hmm. they, you know, my father has passed, my mother's still alive, but he didn't have much to give us. And mm. so, and we didn't want anything. We always say, don't save us anything. Mm. Anything you have, use for yourself. Oh, that's incredible Eat better. too. Yeah. Go on a vacation. We don't want your money. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's... But because he taught us that we really need to earn our own way, and we mm-hmm. just kind of have maintained that. Yeah. You know? Why did you get into education in the first place? What was your plan or your hope for that? I think when I was a very young girl, I just remember playing teacher all the time <laughs> with my imaginary <laughs> games. And I, th- I think I've always just liked teaching. Mm-hmm. And so I actually have my degree in elementary ed. Right, and master's too. Yeah, and and I really like doing that. But then when I had my first son, I just said, wow, I would have to be with young kids, kindergartners is what I taught, oh my gosh, and then come day. home oh. and then have, you know, my son. And I just said, I think that's really hard. Yeah, that's I don't know brutal. how much patience and I want, don't want my son to suffer for it after being with kids yeah. all day. So I said, I think I need to kind of change, do something else. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend that approached me and said, would you like to teach ESL at Prime Computer, which was a big mainframe computer company? Mm-hmm. They had a lot of um, immigrants, mostly from Vietnam and Cambodia, Mm -hmm. that worked in manufacturing that they wanted them to be able to communicate better with English. And so they hired me, and I basically taught workplace English. Did you have to be able to speak Vietnamese or? No. Okay. No. All in English. All in English because there there was also Portuguese people, so I really couldn't speak Mm. just the specific language. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so um, I developed like workplace English curriculum so that I remember holding a tool and saying, this is a screwdriver. (laughs) (laughs) And then this way they would actually know the English to use at workplace. I remember um, doing a whole curriculum on um, the sexual harassment policy because they were rolling that out in HR. And so I would review those things. So a lot of it was really just based on the English they needed to do their jobs better. So once I did that, I did that in several companies. And then one company said, we'd like to hire you full time as a corporate trainer and then from there, I started, you know, teaching management, you know, curriculum, leadership mm-hmm. curriculum, and so forth. So I kind of morphed into that. So I still had that education that I really loved with teaching, except now they're adults. Yeah. But I was able to separate working with adults and then come home to my kids. Yes. And it just worked out so much better. Yeah. That's a different dynamic for exactly. sure. Yeah. Exactly. So then what brought you to... The Central Coast, mm. from Boston to here, is that you did a direct yeah cut from boston wow i did and it was really uh, 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 strange how that happened because as i was working for a company we were looking for an e-learning program mm-hmm. for our field service engineers so they could learn online how to improve customer service mm-hmm. so i did a search online and i came across this company in san luis obispo so oh where is that yeah and i don't remember the name of the company because they've sold it since then mm-hmm. but the program was called getting to the heart of field service mm-hmm. and um the people that i work with i remember peggy and malcolm carlaw they've they've moved to oregon since yeah. then but they were so nice and i would have several conference calls getting this program set up for our company 
And we would always make small talk. Oh, how's the weather there? And always be, oh, slow is 70 degrees It's today. always it's sunny. beautiful, yes. And I said, it's 20 below zero with a yeah. wind chill factor. And then this would go on every time we talked. And then <laughs> Started to get a little annoying, didn't yes. it? <laughs> and then she said, you know, someday come visit us and we will take you around. And then, so one summer I said, you know what? I said, my husband, let's just go. I've never been to this San Luis Obispo place. Let's just go check it out. And then they just drove us around and our eyes were getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And this was in the winter. I remember coming. I said, oh, there's flowers on the trees here. Because mm-hmm. we had just left a place with the ice storm. Yes. So we came here and I was just enthralled with the weather. And then they took us down at Valley. Well, you're sold at that uh, point. We I were mean. sold. And that's when my husband and I said, oh, my God, do you think we could actually live here? Mm-hmm. And then when we got back home, we kept talking about this San Luis Obispo. And, mm-hmm. and then we came back and visited again. And we said, wow, it feels really good here. It just felt good. Mm-hmm. Everywhere I went, people would just, like, talk to us. I would keep saying, are, you yes. ta- are they talking to us? <laughs> Because it's not like that in Boston. No. And I kept saying, people are so friendly here. And, you know, I just feel like I'm right at home. But the the other thing that really sold us was we saw so many older people biking and running and looking healthy. Yeah. And I said, I don't see anybody here that is overweight. Mm -hmm. I said, everybody looks healthy. Mm -hmm. And I said, when we retire someday, I want to be like that. Mm. I want to be where weather is not a factor in my activity. Yeah. Because I said, if we're in Boston all winter, I'm going to be indoors. Yes. So I so we talked about it again. And then the third time we came out, we said, let's buy a house. Yeah. And we, we found something we loved and we just bought it. <laughs> and then we talked to our sons and we said, oh, you know, we yeah, got to leave they them. Yeah, that? They said, you know what? You go where it makes you happy. Oh, As it cool. turns out, Slow was one of the happiest cities to live ah. in. So it, it was like, okay, that's where we're going to go then. Yeah. And no, they were so happy that they, we found a place. And they were sad, but they said, no, you got to go where it makes you happy. Yes. Because, you know, we don't see them every day, but hmm. we have to like live our life and be healthy every day. Yeah. And they've come and visit us often. We go back to Boston often. Mm-hmm. We Zoom every two weeks. And so I still feel very connected to them. Mm-hmm. And so I have no regrets. I'm so glad we moved here. That's very cool. Love it here. I lived on the East coast for a number of years and, um, the weather thing is a real factor. Like, I mean, I feel, I always kind of felt like a weenie for, for, <laughs> for complaining about the weather because so many of my friends were native East coasters who were like, get over it, you know, baby from California, get over it. Um, but it really is something that changes or or determines, in some cases, your quality of life. It's, it I would say it's like ground zero for mm-hmm. determining quality of life. Exactly. We're very, I mean, there's a reason it's so bloody expensive here, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I was in Washington, D.C. with my family about two weeks ago, and <laughs> my husband is so... So dear. He is a, he's a hello to everybody guy and very happy to chat with anybody. And he was saying hello to people on the street. And I was like, and he, he's never lived over there. And I was like, honey, you just, it's just not, they're going to think you're a creeper or. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So yeah, it's just, 
you forget how friendly it is here. It becomes very normal. And yes. then you go elsewhere and it's like, oh, don't talk to your neighbor. Don't talk to so-and-so. Don't talk yeah. to anyone. Yeah. It, it's a very different climate because um, even when I was uh, working, I was still working out of my company in Boston. They kept me on remotely. So I would travel back and forth to Boston periodically. And I have forgotten and I would see people and I would start talking to them. They would look at me strange. <laughs> oh, like, Annie, you're in Boston again. Stop talking to me. And <laughs> I had to even switch. curtail myself because I got used to this culture. Yeah. And I was just more open. But, you know, I, I just remember when I lived in Boston, no, you just kind of kept to yourself mm-hmm. because it's a bigger city. So you do have to be more cautious. Yes. You know? So you're right. It, it is a very different culture. And I remember when I lived in Boston, we had like ice storms and everything mm-hmm. else. And then we would hear about people in California not driving because it was raining. I said, well, they're such wimps. They're <laughs> such wimps. <laughs> but totally. now I know <laughs> here, yes, if it's raining, I don't need to go drive out no. there because, you know, whatever. I mean, there's enough sunny days I can drive. Yeah. I don't have to go out in the rain. No. So I get it now that I live here. You know, I said that it's really expensive here, but it's expensive in Boston too. It and is. it reminds me that there are massive benefits to living in a city and a city as wonderful as Boston too. Mm. The education level is off the charts. How many higher education places are there in Boston? It's like the most per capita of anywhere in the U S it is so much for the, for the density of the population. I don't know the number offhand, but there's almost a college around every corner and there's not only the four-year colleges, tons of community colleges, yes. and then specialty art colleges, conservatories, and technical and, colleges, yes. and conservatory, and um, there's so much opportunity in colleges. And so, you know, my kids really benefited, uh, you mm. know, with the public schools as well as the higher education because mm-hmm. it was, you know, so great. But it's really funny. A lot of times, kids in California will want to go to school in the East Coast. Yes. But then my kids actually both applied to schools in California. Oh, did they? (laughs) Well, because the weather was nicer. Sure. But they ended up going to school on the East Coast because, you know, they, it was a really good college that they both got in. So they were fine. Yes. Yeah. But no, I loved growing up in Boston. Mm -hmm. But as we were getting older and we were starting to think about retirement and thinking of how the weather is going to factor into your activities and what you're able to do and quality of life, Mm -hmm. as you said, we said, this will give us a better quality of life. Mm-hmm. And I think when I moved here, I immediately dropped five pounds. <laughs> just just like without even trying. Yeah. Because I was able to walk mm, yes. at night. And so I just said, okay, right. It proved to me that, yes, I could be healthier here. Yeah. Do you live in a pretty walkable part of town? I do. I live near um, Etna Valley. <laughs> Oh, imagine that. Oh my gosh, is it just gorgeous? It's gorgeous, yeah. Because we said, after seeing Edna Valley, we said, so we're kind of in the backyard at Edna Valley. We live near the Islay Hills area. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, we have to live over here because this is what we fell in love with when yeah. we saw it. So it's very walkable. We have like a walking, they, they built a walking trail within the development mm-hmm. and all these um, houses connected this walking trail. Lovely. So, we don't have anything like that in Boston. Yeah. And I just said, what a great planning that they did mm-hmm. that you could like walk out of your home and just connect to this path. And then I just started meeting lots of the same neighbors. Yeah. Got, I got to know more people because we walked the same path. So again, it just kind of populated the the friendliness of everybody. Yes, And so... Walkability and is a huge factor. I mean, when when the guy Dan, 
I don't know how you say his last name, Dan Beatner, the guy who labeled us the happiest city in North oh, America. Yes. Walkability um, and places for public gathering yes. were some of his criteria for determining the health and happiness of a place. It's real. Yeah. Setting up setting up walking paths and personally, I would argue biking paths. I know that's not a popular discussion. <laughs> um, but it incur- you know, city planning makes a difference yeah. in people's lives. Yeah. I agree. I mean, even have the beautiful mission to have that as a gathering place I every know. Friday. Yes. And I was just really impressed with the way the city was architected. Yeah. I just said it really does lend itself in the beautiful downtown. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's such a vibrant downtown. So I just said everything about this place just set friendly and healthy and happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I give slow kudos for the way they set up the city. It's amazing. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as a Chinese woman, does diversity factor into how does diversity strike you here or uh, lack thereof? Does it matter or does it not? Or what do you see? Well, one of our criteria for moving to a place where we were going to eventually retire was diversity. Mm-hmm. That was actually number one on our list. Oh, wow. So yeah. when we came here and we looked around and my husband and I said, okay, let's just start counting every time we see a diverse. <laughs> and, we, and we specifically, we were looking for Asians. Yes. Is right. your husband Asian? He is. Okay. So we counted. And I think the first time we were here, I think we found five. I don't know. Just wandering around. And I said, <laughs> it's like oh, bingo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I said, okay, it's not a very diverse town, right? Good. So I said, it really doesn't meet our criteria. Mm-hmm. But then what kind of swayed us was the friendliness of people. Mm-hmm. And I said, but everybody is friendly. It, it doesn't matter who we are. Yeah. And I said, so we changed our minds. We said, oral criteria. I said, I would rather be in a place where people are friendly and accept me for who I am Mm -hmm. than just having a diverse town and maybe not being as open. Mm. So we just said, I think that's really what we want is that people are accepting of who we are and of all people. Mm -hmm. And so I said, slow has that. So though over the 10 years we've lived here, I have noticed more diversity. Oh, yay. Uh, certainly not to the level of Boston. Yeah. But I do notice more. And um, I think Cal Poly yes. helps with that. I think so too. You know, a lot of kids that do come to Cal Poly come back and they stay because yeah. they like the, the place. Yeah. But I do notice more. And actually, even within my neighborhood, I've seen a change over the last three years. Yay. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. I see more diversity here. Yes. So. That's a good thing. Yes. So I think it's, it is happening, um, you know, but it, it's going to be gradual just like any town. For it's sure. not going to be overnight. No, no. I mean, and I say yay just because it makes me excited to know that some people feel welcome here. That's, yeah. that's mostly why diversity excites me. Uh, not mostly, but that's one reason it right. excites me. Yeah. yeah. But we definitely felt welcome here from the first moment mm-hmm. we came, and we have always felt welcome here. We've never felt anyone treating us any different to make us pause. We just, you know, we just, we were very comfortable here. Mm. And um, so again, I feel that was a right decision that we came and that we kind of changed our criteria a bit, um, where it's more important that people accept us for who we are than having just diversity as a number. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. So that makes me happy to hear that. Um, this is nothing nearly like that, but I just remember my husband and I lived in New Zealand for a time and, um, 
we wanted to be friends with Kiwis. We had our arms open, but the people we wound up really connecting with were other Americans who were there. Mm. And we had this very tight little community for a time. Um, And I think sometimes it's like you can look for a lot of diversity, but if you find your people, you have the community you're looking for. That is true. Yeah, yeah. That is true. And I, I think one of the things that is very easy to do is to just find people like you and to stay with people yes, like you. Yes, it's very tempting. Yeah, and I and my husband and I have always said, let's not do that. Yeah. Let's make sure that we still branch out. Of course, we're going to gravitate to people that we're very comfortable with, that we have things in common. Mm-hmm. But it's nice to learn about other people that we don't have great things in common with because, you know, we'll get to know them as well. So it is very tempting to become a little clicky, I guess. And and we don't want to do that. Well, and you know, common ground between people, it, it forges deep bonds. Yes, Um, of course. Yes. I I could stand to do better with, you know, uh, uh, spending time with people who are very different from me, but that common ground thing, it, it is very tempting and it's very comfortable. Yeah. It makes it easy to talk and you yeah. connect immediately. Mm-hmm. And so it is very tempting. But I think what I found is I have a, a you know group of friends where we are all different, but because we de- develop another commonality, we love to cook. Yes. So we have this cooking group that we formed. This was after the people that I taught Chinese cooking. We just, we've been cooking together for five years now but now all different kinds of foods. So now we have a new common ground, which is love of cooking and love of eating. So I think when you find a new common ground, you can break out of your mode of the commonality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. background. You can find a new commonality. New, yes, new commonality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which, which is really nice. So I have like friends from all different backgrounds, Yeah. you know, so I, I really do enjoy that because, um, it's more fun when you are with diverse people. Yeah. You learn a lot more. Yes, you do. And you, you get know? to eat better too. Yeah, 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 exactly. So the group that you cook with, do you meet like once a month or something? It's more like every other month now because we're all so busy. Yeah. Um, but we try to schedule out for a whole year. <laughs> this, That's smart. Yes. That way we can put it down in our calendar and then we can plan our schedule around that. Yeah. So we cook um, like every two months. And then we always pick a theme and sometimes like one of us will go to vacation to Italy. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of, you know, most of us like to go for a cooking class with the country we go to. Yeah. So we had one friend that went to Italy. She brought back the recipes. Mm-hmm. So we came back and we did her recipes. We did homemade pasta. We did ragu bolognese. We mm. did the recipes that she brought back. And then, you know, uh, we had a friend that actually went to San Francisco and went to this great empanada place so Mm. we made empanadas another time so we we're always looking for just new things to make and then we all push ourselves to try new recipes so we learn how to make different recipes but it's like a safe place to practice yes and it gives you something to look forward to and to kind of aspire to sharing exactly yeah so we continue to cook together and we just have such a great time when we see each other Mm. um and so that that's a, a nice way of just continuing the cooking. And then every time I have a new Chinese recipe, every now and then we'll go back to the Chinese cooking. Mm-hmm. We say, oh, watch every Chinese New Year, we'll do another Chinese meal. Mm-hmm. And then I'll give my recipes to my friends, and we all you know prepare it at home. And then we'll cook it at the host home. Yes. And so we always celebrate Chinese New Year together. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of nice, And that's that group too. that was in the magazine. Yeah. 
That's so cool. Yeah. So cool. Okay, well, one of the questions I sent you ahead of time, and I don't know why this question (laughs) came to me, but I am curious. What do people get wrong about cooking Chinese food? So I thought about that because I saw your question, and I even asked my sister, who was staying with me uh, last week, and I asked my husband the same question because I wanted to see what the answers were. Yeah. They all kind of morphed around the same theme. So I'm going to talk about stir fry. Oh, yay. Yay. So I, I wouldn't say that they get it wrong. I just think that maybe they were taught differently than I was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the things that I, I, when I do my cooking classes, most people tell me when I do stir fry, you know, they cut all their vegetables and everything else. And they throw everything in the pot and they stir fry it and they add some soy sauce. And that's kind of the stir fry. Yeah. I said, okay, so I stir fry a little bit differently. So, um, first of all, soy sauce is not the only seasoning. <laughs> there is so much seasoning. If you ever go to the Asian markets, you will yeah. see there's a whole wall full of seasonings. And one of the things I always like to do is to mix a different amount of umami sauces and spices. And there's always a sauce in my stir fry, mm-hmm. which flavors everything. So that's one thing that I like to do. So soy sauce is not the only seasoning. The second thing is a lot of times I put meat in my stir fry. Because yeah, we eat meat. So sure. one of the things that um, I find that a lot of people don't do is the benefits of cornstarch. Yeah. So yes. not only do I add a little marinade of my meat, it's usually like soy sauce, a little bit of sugar, and a little bit of Shaoxing wine. Yeah. And then I coat it with just a little bit of cornstarch. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I do that is because it keeps the flavor in the meat, but also when you pan fry it, it keeps all the juices in. Mm-hmm. So if you were to cook a, a sliver of steak mm-hmm. without the cornstarch on the pan and another one with cornstarch, you will see the one without the cornstarch, all the juices are coming out. Yeah. Which means that when you eat it, it's going to be dry. Yeah. With the cornstarch, there's, you know, sears better, no juices the are coming sear, out. That's what I thought you were going to say is the sear is so beautiful. It's the sear yeah. as well. So when I do stir fry, I do make sure I marinate the meat, add some cornstarch. And stir fry doesn't mean putting the meat in the pan and starting to fry it right away because then you don't get the sear. Yeah. You actually get the Gotta steam. heat that thing first. So you want to leave it on the pan for like a minute, let it sear on one side, flip it on the other, let it sear the other side. Then you remove it from the pan, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. So that, that's another thing I notice is that the way people um, stir-fry meat is to make sure you use cornstarch to make sure you get the flavor. I'm sorry to interrupt, but with what cut do you often use if you're doing beef? Do you do like a big flank steak or do you do... Flank steak is very good. Because it's so thin. Yeah, it's thin, but it also has obvious um, uh, grain, uh, the grain, yeah. so that you cut against the grain, so mm-hmm. it's easier to see. Because if you cut a, against the grain, the meat will be much more tender. If you mm-hmm. cut with the grain, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Okay, um, but a lot of times it's just what Costco has on sale. Yeah, the New York sirloin. Yeah, Ooh. anything that's tender mm-hmm. is what we do because we don't use a lot of meat. So whatever meat I use, I want to make sure it's really tender. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the spice, that's the meat. And the last thing is whatever vegetables you use, I like to layer on the flavors. So if I'm using like f- six different vegetables, I might cook them separately or in peers. Hmm. And I cook them according to the cook time that each one uses. Mm-hmm. So I might start off with like stir frying the pea paws and the onions, and then I season that. Mm-hmm. And for the pea paws, I like to season it with a little bit of teriyaki sauce as well. Mm-hmm. And then I take it out. 
And then the next two ingredients might be, I don't know, celery and, you know, parboiled broccoli, Mm because they cook about the same time. I'll do the same thing, stir fry it, salt it, take it out. And then the third pier, I would do the same thing. And then at the very end, what I do is I put the sauce in the pan, Mm because the pan's now empty. Then I put everything back in. And that's the stir fry. Yeah, okay. Then you stir fry everything with the sauce that you created with multiple spices. So stir stir fry is not more complicated, but it's a bit more layering of flavors rather than putting everything in at one point and just putting in like soy sauce or, you know, maybe something else. So um, I've done that in many of my classes and... You know, what people tell me is that I can taste the flavor of every single ingredient Mm -hmm. because it's been flavored separately. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've known that people tell me that they do differently than what I do. And and I think for them, it's just like, wow, that's easy to incorporate. Yes. It's just that I didn't know you had to do that. Well, you kind of have to slow down and think about it more, too. You know, this plus this plus this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is pretty inelegant to just throw it all in and and it what really kills me I'm gonna call my husband out I'm so sorry sweetie but you like (laughs) with the pan not heating it enough ahead of time yes and then chucking everything in there it's true it just it just steams it It which is not appealing yeah Yeah. it doesn't have the flavor so you're right we always heat up the pan really hot and I usually put my hand over and I hover it yeah and I just know how hot it should be and then I put the oil in yeah and then you get the oil hot enough and then you put things in and a lot of times with the different vegetables I'll always add like one piece of garlic Mm -hmm. just to give it the flavor before I stir fry like the pea pods and the onions just to give it a flavor then you take that out you could add another piece of garlic. So you flavor it with either garlic or shallot and or salt. Garlic is like 30 quick. seconds. Yeah. Five seconds, just, just until you can smell the aroma, then you throw the vegetables in. Yeah. So it flavors each batch of vegetables that you mm-hmm. put in. Mm-hmm. And it just makes it so much more flavorful. You probably have seen this in your cooking group, but I mean, I'm struck by Italian cooking. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose to some degree like peasant French cooking, country French. Um, It's like three ingredients. Simplicity is everything. You have, you know, you have a good tomato, you have good mozzarella, you have beautiful, uh, the appropriate basil, and then you have olive oil, salt. I mean, that's, that's it. That can be so, so good. Mm -hmm. What I'm hearing from you and what I think I've known for a long time, so much of Asian cooking in general is the cumulative effect of many different things that come in harmony. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I mean, there there isn't one that's better or worse, mm-hmm. just a different style and both so delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there there's a lot going on with just that simple stir fry that you're talking about. Yeah. But 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 when you look at the ingredients, it's really not that much. It's just yeah. thinking the process of building huh. the flavor is just what's different. Yeah. But everybody knows what salt and garlic and shallot is, For right? Sure. So it's all there. It's but just the- teriyaki, soy sauce. These are complex flavors. I think. Oh yeah, I they're mean, multi-layered. It, they are because if you look at the ingredients, I mean, it's, it's mostly soy, but. Um, there's other things to make it interesting, but then I might use, um, hoisin sauce. I I might use ponzu sauce. So depending on what I'm doing, I mix different flavors Mm -hmm. and then it just creates another profile. And then some sauces, you need a little bit of vinegar. You want sweet and sour. And so 
It's just really thinking about the flavor profile that you want to put in your sauce. Mm -hmm. But most of my stir fries have some kind of sauce that I put over the whole thing at the very end to just flavor the whole dish. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So you're making me wonder at home how you eat. Just as, as a thumbnail sketch of how you eat, tell me what you cooked last night. So last night we had leftovers. <laughs> oh, God bless you, woman. So did we. <laughs> but the day before that, we actually cooked it. Yeah. And we actually made um, pan-fried noodles um, mm. with Cantonese pan-fried noodles with chicken. And I made it because my sister from Montana was in town. And mm. she said, can you teach me how to make noodles? So I said, okay. So we did that. Am I wrong in thinking? Please forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, but pan-fried noodles. I mean, chow mein is a pan-fried noodle, yes. right? Which yes. is just blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I love it so much. Yeah. And I and we're lucky because I can get the, it's a specific noodle that you can buy at both Daebu and the, the slow Asian market, but mm-hmm. it's called Hong Kong steamed noodles. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the kind of noodles that I have found to be the best for stir fry. So once I found the right noodles, I was able to do my pan fried noodle dish because I tried a lot of different kinds. They would stick to the pan. They yes. would get gummy. They would get mushy. These are the best noodles. So um, Wheat noodles, right? They are made with wheat, mm-hmm. yes. And so um, I just taught my sister how to make it, but basically it's like baby bok choy. We put mm-hmm. chicken in it, bean sprouts, um, shiitake mushrooms, and then there's always a sauce that I make. Mm-hmm. So basically, yeah, that's what we had for dinner. Mm. And then um, I always make lots of um, ground turkey and chive pot stickers. I always mm. make a batch mm. of like 30, mm-hmm. and then I freeze them all. And so, so uh, last night we had that along with the noodles, be, mm-hmm. just as a side dish. Mm-hmm. So we had also um, uh, uh, turkey and chai pot stickers with like a dipping sauce and hot oil. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my dinner. So if I do leftovers, some, you know, I, if I have something else in the freezer, I can just yeah. kind of have on the side. Yeah. So that's kind of what we had. Um, but that's kind of typical. Usually we have like some type of um, a meat dish with probably vegetables and like another vegetable dish. Yeah. So usually have like two things for dinner and anything that I make my cooking classes are basically what my husband and I eat on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. And that those are the pictures I have on my Instagram account. And I just let people see this is what, you know, I would make, but this is what we eat all the time. So my type of cooking is not Chinese restaurant style Mm -hmm, cooking. mm -hmm. It is kind of what I call home style style cooking. And that's why a lot of people have never had it because it's not served in restaurants. Right. So it's, it's, it's dishes that my grandmother taught me that I just really like. And Mm I, I just like the flavor of it and I won't digress from that. I won't go fusion yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that's just not me. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to just make what you like. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to make what I like. And then, I mean, and, and the people who contact me, that's what they want. Yeah. They want pure homestyle Chinese food. And mm-hmm. I said, that's what I make. Oh, I love it. Those turkey chive pot stickers sound right up my alley. Love that. Love that. Kind of, so I might yeah. be having to ask myself. Invite myself over for dinner. Okay. I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I actually included that recipe in the Edible Slow magazine. Oh, yay. Okay. I did. So the recipe is actually in the magazine. The only thing that wouldn't fit is how to fold the pot stickers. But you mm. know what? It, it's still going to taste good however you fold it. Yes. Yes. So do you fold it? I mean, if I remember correctly in the picture, they are kind of like, are they, they round wrappers that fold over? Yes. They're round. They fold over. And then I kind of pleat them on each yes. side. So they pleat it like three on the right side, then pleat it on the left side. Okay. 
And then the important thing is just to kind of flatten it so they kind of have a bottom. So that they can fry. So they can fry. Yeah. Because the, the original pot sticker is only the bottoms fry oh. and then it's done. Oh. Okay. So the way that we usually cook the pot stickers is we just pan fry them until they're like lightly golden brown. Yeah. And then you're going to add like a little bit of water steam in it. Steam them. Cover it. Mm-hmm. Steam them so that the turkey will cook. Yeah. And then once um, you lift up the lid, once the water is almost done, kind of turn the fire up a little bit and let it finish cooking. And then it's going to take a second sear. Mm. And when the mm-hmm. second sear is there, it's done. Lovely. So it's very simple. So that's why the hard part is making all the filling and making it. So yes. that's why I make like 30. Yeah. I freeze it. And then it's there. It's such a good... Um, you can make batches for yes. sure. Yes. I have never done the second sear before. I've never known yeah. that. I've always just um, seared it, steamed it, and removed it. Yeah, I like because it makes it crispy again. Yes. So if you just wait for that, you just get the little bit of crisp on the bottom, and mm-hmm. then that then is perfect. Lovely. Okay. So how can people take one of your classes? Um, so I they can contact me at, at Slow Asian Cooking, mm-hmm. which is my Instagram tag. Yep. Um, I don't have a website because I keep it small. I noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking around. I didn't see anything. Yes. Yeah. And they could just private message me and yeah. just ask me. And then um, I have another class coming up in like three weeks. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, I just book as I book. I don't aggressively campaign. And you can book through you, but also through Central Coast Culinary Academy, right? Um, I actually have not been doing any public classes, unfortunately, because of COVID. Oh, yes. I pulled back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I stopped doing it during COVID mm-hmm. and then because I was doing so much of the pu- my private parties, mm-hmm. I just kept going with that. Okay. Got so, it. yeah. So, okay. so I, I, they just contact me in Instagram and I'll be happy to respond. And do you come to them or do they come to you? I go to their house. Fun. So basically the host will invite their friends, mm-hmm. you know, seven to 10 people. And then they choose a menu. I have tons of recipes and I let people, um, select from a, a, a bunch of items and they choose a five course meal mm-hmm. plus steam rice. And then what I'll do is I'll ask the host, how much involvement do they want to be? Yeah. Do they want to do a lot of prep, minimal prep? Do they want me to do the cooking? So I, I kind of just do an assessment and they mm-hmm. let me know. And based on that, I prepare as much as needed at home before I bring it to their house. Mm-hmm. And so I buy all the ingredients. I, you know, I wash all the vegetables, kind of do all the boring prep. Very boring. Yeah, boring prep that they really, they all know how to do. And then I just bring everything all packaged up and I put it around. And I always go to visit the host kitchen first. So I can That's know the smart. layout mm-hmm. and know where we're going to prepare. And then I just put down the bags of all the five different recipes where they are. And then when people come, we sit down first. I do like a 30, 40 minute introduction about what we're going to do. I do some of the prep ahead of time um, and show them how to do it. I'll do demos. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say, okay, we need like two volunteers for this dish and one for this. And then they get going. And then when it comes time to cook, I guide them or I do the cooking Mm -hmm. and then everything just kind of comes together. So it takes about two to two and a half hours to do the prep Mm -hmm. before they sit down to eat. Mm -hmm. And then they'll sit down to eat. I'll just, you know, see if there's any questions. And then Mm -hmm. I just clean up my things and then I just leave them to their party. I love that. Can I ask how much you charge currently for that? Right now I charge $90 a person. Yeah. 
And as so I said, worth it. That, so worth that it. That includes, you know, five dishes and rice, and mm-hmm. then they get all the recipes in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, they, a lot of times they take videos while I'm like wrapping the dumplings so they can have to see how they do it. Yeah. So um, they really get the educational piece behind all the dishes as well. Mm. And um, people have been really happy with it. And it just makes me happy that they're happy with it. Yeah. I, I think the, the cutest story that I just, that happened just recently was, um, I made whole steamed fish mm-hmm. and I guess one of the guests wasn't aware that I was going to make whole steamed fish. Mm-hmm. So she went, I cannot believe that you're making my absolutely favorite dish. She oh. said, I used to go to, was it Mandarin Yen? Um, Here in town? Yeah. That was in the Madonna Plaza. Yeah. I can't remember. It was called Mandarin something. Yes. Yes. And she said they were the only Chinese restaurant that she knew that did the whole steamed fish. You yep. had to order ahead of time, but when they closed, she wasn't able to get it anymore. Yeah. So she said that she hasn't had it since that day. Mm. So we made it. And then um, when it was all cooked, I was just kind of deboning the fish for them. And I was going to put the fish head off to the side. She says, no, no. I, I want that. <laughs> Delicacy. So I, so I put it on her plate and she was thrilled. And then... Um, <laughs> I left and all that, but then I saw the host the next day and she said, it was so funny. I don't remember her name, but she said, after you left, she just dived into that fish head. And by the end of the meal, it was just a, a tiny little bone and she was the happiest camper. And I said, okay, that makes me happy. Yes, of course. I made her happy. That makes me happy. Yeah. So I thought that was just great. So I, I just love those moments when people tell me that. It's like, oh, that's so cool. That must feel so fulfilling. Yeah, sure. it, it does. And that's like training. I love training because, mm-hmm. you know, it would be fulfilling because mm-hmm. you would see changes in people. You know, mm-hmm. they would come back and say, well, I really learned something new. And that's why I do it. And think about your grandmother, too. I mean, oh, she is so alive happy. through this. It's a legacy, which is incredible. Yeah. Which yeah. is incredible. Okay. Well, if it were your last day on earth, I'm dying to know, actually, what would you eat to celebrate your life? What would you drink and who would be there? I thought about that a lot when you said that. And I, and I said, you know what? There's a lot of things I can, I can think to eat, but I'll go with the first thing that came yeah. to my mind. And it's something that I probably will never have in my cooking class because it is so authentic, but mm-hmm. it's actually a dish made with bitter melon, Mm. pork belly, and shrimp sauce and fish sauce. Wow. So if you know fish sauce, I don't know if you're Okay. So shrimp sauce is probably three times more pungent Mm. than fish sauce. Mm. I think that's that's actually Toysonese. I think it's a very, very localized um, ingredient. And I just remember my grandmother making that a lot, using shrimp sauce and it ferments doesn't it it's very fermented and it's made with very tiny little shrimp that's been fermented um but the way i like to make is i steam my bitter melon and then i put it in a pie plate and then i sprinkle it with fish sauce to give it the flavor and then i get some pork belly and then i mix that with shrimp sauce and some Mm. more fish sauce and then i mix the two together and then what i do is i steam it Mm -hmm. for like 30 minutes And then after I steam it, I take a bunch of scallions, put it on top, heat up some oil till it's like swirling hot, Mm. and then I drizzle it over the whole thing. Mm. And it like just go, wow. But then it is the most fragrant thing. But the funniest thing that happened when I was making this dish the last time, I was in the kitchen, I had my kitchen window open. I had just taken out the pork and I was mixing it with the shrimp sauce. And all of a sudden I looked up and I says, 
wow, there's a lot of turkey vultures up there. <laughs> and then as I was mixing, one came right up to the kitchen window. Really? They smelled? They smelled the fish sauce. Oh, and I said, apparently funny. this smells to their liking. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I mean by being pungent. But I love the flavor because I grew up eating it. Yes, it must taste like home. Yeah. And it, I think I choose that dish because I have it with my grandmother. Yeah. Because when I eat that, I, I do think of my grandmother because she's the one that kind of taught me about that ingredient. Mm-hmm. And what I would drink is probably just water. Yeah. I don't drink a lot of wine. So I would just have water with that. Yeah. And um, that would be a great meal. That is a great meal. Because that just kind of tells me about like who I am is kind yes. of my roots reminds me of my grandmother and it's like just a true authentic yeah. flavor yeah to me it sounds perfect for you yeah. yeah so Annie thank you so much for taking time out of your Thursday morning to chat with me here it was my pleasure mine too thank you yeah thank you so much thanks for carving time out of your day to listen to consume If you like what you hear, it always helps if you rate and subscribe to the feed. To learn more about my guests, see their photos, and connect with them via their website or social media, visit letsgetconsumed.com. You'll also find a newsletter sign up if you want to visit for me in your inbox every now and again. Until then, I'm Jamie Lewis. Cheers. Cheers.